you have your Bibles, we will be continuing on in 1 John. Near the end of your Bible. If you blink, you'll miss it. First John chapter 2 is where we will be continuing on. So glad to see everybody here tonight, and for all those that may be watching online at home, uh, we're glad that you've uh, chosen to take the time to um, join us as we open up God's Word and hear what He has to say to us, uh, because that's where we find what God has to say. God has spoken. He has graciously given us His Word. What a wonderful gift that is, and so we're privileged to be able to come and, and study that together. Last time we looked at John's emphasis on Christian maturity and his encouragement to all Christians, regardless of their place in the growth chart, if there was actually a chart. There's not really a chart, but he wanted to encourage no matter where they were at, to continue to pursue um, the process of growth in Christlikeness, to continue to grow in their faith and their knowledge of God. And he began with a reminder to Christians that, that their sins are forgiven. Isn't that the focal point of the life of Christians, that our sins are forgiven? And he wanted to start that section out by reminding them of that. Before he got into everything else he wanted to say about their Christian growth, the starting point for all Christians is salvation. It is that our sins are forgiven. And what a great thing that is. And so he encouraged them in that way, and then he continued to encourage them that they, that they know the Father, him who is from the beginning, he said, and that they have overcome the evil one, Satan and his schemes, and that they have done so because they're made strong, as we saw last week, by the word of God abiding in them. And notice the emphasis on the word of God as the source of strength, and that is no different for you and I today. All these many hundreds and hundreds of years later, a couple thousand years later, we still have the word of God and as Christians, that word of God abides in us. Um, so that was his encouragement for them last week on that. And, and John emphasized this growth by talking about three stages that every Christian should find themselves in at some point. The children, right, those who are new, those who are babes in the faith, uh, and then young men, those who are gaining in wisdom and knowledge but still need growth. Um, and protection. And then fathers, those who are mature, they are settled, unwavering, anchored in the truth, yet still seek to know the Father even more through the deepest study and discovery of the vastness of His holiness found in His Word. And so we see that progression from children to young men to fathers, and uh, that holds for us today too. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, whether you're a new believer, um, you've been a believer for a few years, or you've been a, a believer for many, many, many years, we all will always be growing, uh, and we should always desire to continue growing. So you don't, when you reach the stage of father, or you could say mother in this situation too, uh, it says believers in general, not just men. Um, when you reach that stage of maturity, you don't just stop, right? And I think we, we talked about that last week. We will never learn everything there is to learn. We will continually open up God's word and be 
taught new things um, by the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers. And now John moves on to give a strong warning. More than that, a command that will not only help keep believers on the right track, but and, and on the right track to avoid sin, but that gives it gives yet another test for those who think they're believers but are not. And this goes back to chapter 1 and what John wrote about darkness and light, uh, if you remember back that far. This is another way of explaining what those who uh, are like, say they have the Father, but continue to walk in darkness, proving otherwise. So we have a similar text tonight in that sense. So let's read our passage for tonight, and then we'll have a word of prayer. So tonight's focus is 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Okay, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Let's read that. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the fellowship of believers as we gather around to sing praises to you, uh, to read your word, and to be taught by it. We pray for our hearts to be open tonight to receive um, what you have for us through your word, Lord. May we be uh, convicted of areas of our life where perhaps we're uh, aligning too closely with the world. Lord, may we May we learn to reject the world and the things in the world and to abide in you. May we be obedient to you, Father. We thank you that you teach us. Uh, We don't have to wander around wondering what to do and how to be Christians. You have given us your word to teach us, and thank you for that. Thank you for, again, fellowship of believers, that we can help one another. We can help one another stay on track, Lord. We thank you for that gift, and we thank you most of all for your grace and mercy and salvation in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So this passage that we have here starts, starts out with a negative command, a command not to do something. And then the verse ends with the reason why a person should obey this command. Or the consequences, you might say, for doing what John says not to do. And here we come to a passage about the world and about the things in the world. And it's a passage that should cause you to ask yourself what John means, first of all, what John means by the world or what he means by the things in the world. Right? That sh- question should kind of pop up in our heads. Um, and we need to know what he means because he's commanding people not to love those two things, the world and the things in the world. And the problem with loving those two things is that to do so proves something about the one who loves them. He basically says, if you love the world and what is in the world, if that describes you, you are not a Christian. You cannot be a Christian. You have failed the test. Right, the command in verse 15 is, is to all people. Okay? Do not love the world or the things in the world. This is like the call to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a command from God to all people. As Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus addressing the men of Athens regarding their 
inscription to the unknown God, if you're familiar with that passage. He said to them, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, as we just celebrated this last Sunday. So too, this command goes out from John to Christians and non-Christians. It is in reality the same call. Come out of the world, you sinners, and turn to the Savior. There must be a separation from the world and the things in the world in order to abide forever, um, as we saw, as we see in the last verse of the passage, abiding forever. Again, the two things that John says not to love are the world and the things in the world. The question is, what does that mean? So first, regarding the world, okay, let's consider what John is not talking about first. One of the ways the scriptures use the word world is to refer to the physical world or to what has been created, right? John cannot be talking about that, okay? So question, what four words did God say in Genesis 1 about the world that he created? Yes, right, it was very good. Um, Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, so God called his own creation very good. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm uh, 104. Psalm 104, and it's a long chapter, so we won't read the whole thing, but I want to look at some key verses, and I want you to look at those key verses with me to draw our attention to the glory of God in his creation and how God tells us it pleases him when we praise him for what he's made. Okay, so Psalm 104, we're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to, be, we're going to skip down through the chapters. We're not going to read all of them. So when I, when I call out the verse, you can just bump your eyes down to wherever we're going to be at. But for now, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Okay, bump down to verse 5. Look at some of the things about God's creation. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. Verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. Down to verse 33 and and 34. I will sing the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Okay, an entire chapter of talking about God's creation and the amazing awesomeness of his creation and how it provides for everything. And we only read just brief portions of it. But imagine that whole chapter expressing the glory of God and then he ends it by saying that he will sing to the Lord as long as he lives and, and sing praise to God while he has being. And then the last verse there, may my meditation, the meditation on God's creation and God's greatness in it, 
May that meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Okay? Does that sound like something we should hate or not love? No. Now, the, the apostle Paul says that two specific invisible attributes of God are clearly perceived in his, his creation. And those attributes are his eternal power and his divine nature. Clearly visible in what he has made. God intends for us to see him in what he has made. Why would John say that we should hate that? He wouldn't. So we know John is not referring to the world in terms of what God has created, in the sense of God's creation. He's not referring to that. And second, another way the scriptures use the word world is in reference to people, okay? In the broad sense to refer to humanity in general. And John doesn't mean that we should not love people, okay? This is not what he means, that we should not love humanity. That also goes against what the scriptures say, not only about God and how God sees the world in the sense of humanity, but about what God commands us to do. John wrote in his gospel uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. Okay, He's not talking about God so loved his you know, the things he created, though he did create man, but he's talking about humanity there when he uses that word world. God so loved the world, humanity, that he sent his son. God loves people. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us, right? That's people, humanity. That's God expressing his love for people. And God tells us as well, to love people. A couple of weeks ago, we saw in this very letter that John says we have to love other Christians, right? 1 John 2.10 says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Jesus also gave a command regarding who we're to love in Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to love our enemies. Pretty much covers all people, right? All humanity. So as we've seen, John cannot mean God's creation, and he cannot mean people or humanity, because to not love both of those would contradict Scripture. And we could find many other passages where we can see God's command to love. <clears throat> those two are what John is not talking about. So what is he talking about or referring to when he uses the word world here, cosmos. Okay, he's referring to what is invisible. He's referring to what, what belongs to Satan okay, and this worldly spiritual system of evil. Okay, it is, it's Satan's way of life, his world order or realm of existence. Okay, where did that come from? Well, from the sin of Adam, which brought about evil and corruption, idolatry, death into God's good creation. God created it. He said it was good, and sin and death entered the world. Okay. <clears throat> when we get to it later in, in chapter 5 of this, uh, this letter, verse 19, it spells out what John says there. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, that's, that's reminding us that Satan rules this world. Okay, but that doesn't mean rule in the sense of he has power over God, 
Okay, God is a sovereign God. He's in complete control of everything. But Satan uh, does what God allows him to do in this world, and his system is a system of evil and sin and schemes, and it is not a godly system. Okay, Paul wrote about this world order when he reminded the Ephesian Christians uh, where they came from. Okay, and that's true of all of us as Christians. This passage is true of all of us. Where they came from, where they or we used to reside. Right? Ephesians 2, 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? Past tense. You were those things. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay? You see, they once walked in this world. They once followed the course of this world according to the false sinful system of Satan, okay? And those still in their sins uh, still have that spirit of evil working in them, okay? They are called the sons of disobedience, and they, they love this world. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So what about the the why. He said, don't love the world or the things in the world, but why? Okay, look at the last half of verse 15 in our passage there. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can it get any clearer, right? Can it get any more serious than for a person to think they're a Christian, but upon examination through John's test here, realizes they love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Okay, it can't get more serious than that. They're not a Christian. That's what John means when he says the love of the Father is not in him. And how does a person know they love the world or not? John goes on to tell us what uh, the things in the world are. Okay, we kind of need to know that. He said not to love the world or the things in the world. Now, what does he mean by, we know what he meant by the world. What are the things that belong to this world system? Okay, he gives sort of a broad outline here of what those things are in the next verse, if you look there with me, 1 John 2, 16. Okay, for all that is in the world, and he gives these three areas here, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So not only are we not to love the things in the world, but the world itself. It goes both ways, in other words. To love the things of the world is to love the world. To love the world is to love the things of the world. The two can't be separated. And John says that these things of the world are absolutely not from the Father. They're not, or they're only from the world, okay? Uh, that, and this world that we are not to love. Okay, so what are the, tell me what the three things are that John gave us as an outline in verse 16. What are those three things? Right, okay. Now, I love a, an ESV Bible. Uh, your Bible most likely has translated the word John used there as lust. And most of you probably have that. I have an ESV, so mine says desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. 
Um, so you have that word lust in there. John used that word, the Greek word there, um, epithumia, okay, which literally means desire. But also, depending on the context, can mean lust or evil desire. That is, to desire what is forbidden by God, okay? So this, this word and its different forms are used both um, for good and bad desire. Okay, this same word can be used for both good and bad desire. And here we're looking at an example of a negative usage. This is not good desire. Like, like when Paul used it to describe what God does with persistent sinners in Romans 124, he says, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among, them, among themselves. Or James, when he wrote about what causes quarrels and fights among people, uh, in James 4.2, he said, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Those are negatives, the negative usage of that, depending on the context. But on the positive side, an example of a good desire is something uh, we should see as well. And Jesus used the, the verb form of this word when he spoke about uh, the Passover with his uh, disciples on the night he was betrayed. In Luke twenty two fifteen, Jesus said, it says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Okay, God, uh, Jesus is certainly not sinning. This is not a sinful desire, though it's the same word. Um, it's, so we see from the context, this is a good desire, right? As the author of Hebrews wrote about assurance of salvation, in Hebrews 6.11, he says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. But in John's context in our passage here, the desires or lusts, if that's what's in your translation, of the flesh and the eyes is to seek after that which is forbidden. It's an evil desire that draws a person away from the Father because it doesn't come from the Father, but from the world. Therefore, it's drawing people into sin or into lawlessness. Sin and lawlessness are, are the same thing. Okay, the, the flesh, of course, is a reference to, to humanness and its very nature. And when we see in the Scriptures, most of the time, the word flesh is used to talk about sin. It's, it's usually something bad, okay? Um, everything good that God has given, uh, given humans, they pervert because of their sinful flesh. We, we can always find a way to pervert even the good things God has given us, right? The, the Scriptures tell us that we're inventors of evil. Uh, in, in Romans, we can find that passage, inventors of evil. So I wanted to ask a question then. What are some desires we have that are that are godly desires that we turn sinful? What do you think about that? God-given desires that we have that we turn sinful. I'm going to... Food. Oh, hey, that's on my list. Right? Food. Okay? We're, we're hungry and desire food, and we'll take what doesn't belong to us, or we'll take too much. Okay? We become gluttonous. So food, we need food to survive, right? God, He made our bodies. He, he gave us food to eat, to enjoy even. But we can find a way to pervert that, right? And in many different ways. It's not just eating too much. 
It could be such a strong desire that we steal from, from someone to have whatever they have. And that covers the gamut of, of the things that we might mention here. What else? Money? Okay. Yeah, we have money. Money's not an evil thing in itself. What, what makes money evil? The love of it, right? Yeah, that's, that's when it gets bad. And that's that desire. It's that sinful um, desire for what is forbidden, to trust in wealth uh, instead of God. Okay, what else? Companionship? Okay, yeah, companionship. You know, that could enter into the realm of uh, sexuality, right? Uh, we, we desire another person's spouse, uh, or we desire in fornication or some, uh, something in same-sex relationships, other perversions of the godly purpose for sex. God gave that. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing, a gift from God, but we certainly find ways to pervert that, uh, probably more than almost anything else. Okay, did somebody just say something? I miss it? Okay, I thought I heard somebody say something. Um, and notice that the mere desire for what is forbidden is enough to be in sin. Okay? It's a pursuit of the mind that leads to the physical act as well. Food was already mentioned. What about worship? Worship is good, right? Can we pervert that? Certainly can. Yeah. We twist worship to, to please ourselves, right? forgetting that God has told us in His Word how to worship. And we go beyond it, right? We want to create things or we think we're doing something great or I, I do it this way because I feel good when I do it. Never mind that God's word says don't do that, right? And we see that a lot these days. Other things, lodging, comfort, there's all kinds of things that we desire and we need a place to live. Um, we desire comfort, but sometimes in those desires, we desire what we can't have. We desire what belongs to someone else. Okay, we covet what we're not permitted to have because our hearts have led us into a selfish desire as we're, we're not satisfied with what God gave us, right? Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Instead of loving what our flesh desires, we're to hate it. Paul says, put those desires to death. It is all idolatry of the heart. And closely tied to the desires of the flesh is the desires of the eyes or the lust of the eyes. What we see, of course, often goes before what we desire. Okay, I don't always need to see something to desire it. I have an imagination, right? We all have an imagination. And the things of our mind, the, the, the eyes of our mind, you might say, um, can lead us into sin as well. Okay, we see, <clears throat> we see what we don't have. We realize we don't have it. We deserve it, right? We will take it. And this leads to murder, as James said. You can see how the eyes are connected to the flesh. What did David see on the rooftop but Bathsheba bathing? Right? He saw it. He wanted her. He wanted her in his heart. He took it for his flesh, leading to plotting and cover-up, and more plotting, more cover-up, murder, death of a child, shame and reproach, and on and on. Now this, it doesn't truly begin 
with our eyes, though, does it? Um, Our eyes are what we see with. The problem is a heart problem, right? John 17, 9, Brendan quotes this one often for good reason. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? that's, That's the Word of God telling us about our heart, not the organ, but the inner man, right? That's what God says about it. That's where this comes from. It's from within that all those evil desires come from. We get this right from our Lord Himself in Mark uh, 7, 21 and 22. I think we read this one a few weeks ago. Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's from within, from within us. Okay? This doesn't start with our eyes. It's a heart problem. And look at, so then look at the third of the points that John's outlined here for categories of sin. Each of these points is, is a heading for multiple areas of sin, and none of us can escape the clutches of sin, of course, without a Savior who perfectly avoided all categories of sin. And the, the pride of life is John's third category here. Again, these are all connected to one another. The pride of life is basically a, a self-centered boasting. Okay, it's it's uh, arrogance of the worst kind. I think you could argue that all other sin comes from this boastful pride of life. Pride is a, is a terrible thing. Okay, instead of believing, trusting, and worshiping, and serving, following, praising, and glorifying the one true God, we turn everything inward. Okay, we, we not only elevate ourselves above every other person, but we also elevate ourselves above God. And what we're actually doing is dethroning the sovereign God of the universe and replacing Him with me. And we make ourselves God. Okay? We neglect to acknowledge or recognize even the basic provisions of God, like the air we breathe each day, the, the food that we have to eat, um, our, our spouses or uh, our children, um, that our lives are extended even for a second longer in light of our sin. We take all these things for granted. We, we don't worship God as we should. And I, I fear we're more prideful than we'll ever truly understand. Okay? It's, it's a terrible thing, pride. And look over with me, if you would, at Psalm chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. And listen here about the arrogance and, and wicked boasting and desires. Psalm 10, verses 2 through 5. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs, them, puffs at them. He says in, the, in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. And so we see... Um, 
this arrogance. We see this boasting. It's a, it's a replacing of God, putting ourselves there, and in fact saying there is no God. So where do you think this was first played out in history? Garden of Eden, absolutely. In the garden with the devil playing off this type of evil desire in Eve. Right? Did God really say, you, you will not die, you'll be like God. Right? These things that appeal to the sinful human heart. And that scripture said, then she saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. For what? Well, Satan promised her something, that you will like God, right? Are these not also the same things that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness? Right? He, he appealed to Jesus by using all of these categories that John has given us here. Because Jesus, was, because Jesus was like the mature Christian we talked about last week, he defeated Satan by the strength of the truth of the Word of God, right? Adam and Eve fell. Christ did not. And praise God that he did not fall because he became the propitiation for our sins through his perfect, sinless sacrifice of himself. So praise God for that. And he calls us now to come out from the world, to be separate, okay? not to embrace the world system, but to embrace the oddness of being in God's system compared to the world. And we are going to be seen as odd in this world if we are truly following the Lord. John says in the final verse for tonight, verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Don't love the world or the things in the world because they're passing away. The word John used there in, is in the present, okay? It's already happening. And remember, that's a couple thousand years ago it was already happening. So we know it's already happening now, too. It's still happening. And every minute, we're closer to Christ returning. The system of Satan and this world is, is only death and suffering. It may appear, however to be great living and having it all. And isn't that the promise of the pride of life? Right? We think there is no God. Where is he? He hasn't come back yet. But it's going to end. This world system is going to end. The system of God, the kingdom of God is so much different. Right? It's an eternal kingdom. Eternal life is a part of that. Never to be destroyed. Though now, if sometimes it appears as if evil is winning. Don't we, don't we think that sometimes? We can start to think that when we look at the world and what's going on around us. But it is not winning. Daniel 7.14 says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the complete opposite of what John ascribes to this world and its things, right? Peter acknowledged this as well in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things and therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And what is John's ultimate point here for believers? 
He's writing to encourage the Christians here and to warn those who think they're Christians. And his ultimate point here is in the final part of verse 17 when he contrasts the passing away of the world system with what God offers his children. He says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. All these things put themselves up against the sovereign Lord, the things of the world. The world system comes at us with its lofty promises and plausible arguments trying to convince people like Eve that God doesn't mean what God says. Okay? That's not what the Christian should believe. This is a spiritual battle, and Paul tells Christians to fight it with the weapons that God has given, right? Salvation, the Word, the Holy Spirit. We cannot conjure up the fortitude to fight against the desires of the flesh and the eyes uh, and the pride of life. We can't do that on our own. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's what Satan was doing with Eve. Okay? Now we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Those who do the will of God here, we're told, they abide forever. First and foremost, this doing the will of God, this means those who have savingly obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. First and foremost, that is to obey the will of God. There are other things we need to obey, but without that first, no one's obeying anything. I was going to say no one's obeying nothing, but someone would correct my grammar, I'm sure. Um, they've done the will of God, and they will abide forever, those that have savingly come to faith in Christ. They have eternal life. They have shown themselves to have passed the test. G. Campbell Morgan said that the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world. Today, many churches have the idea they must imitate the world in order to reach the world. Beloved, our great nation, one nation under God, will not decay and collapse because of the evil peddlers of pornography or life-destroying drugs but because of Christians who are no longer as salt and light. He said, sinners will always act like sinners because that is all. But when saints begin acting like sinners, their compromise hurts not only themselves and their families and churches and ultimately contributes to the decay of the entire nation. Are you as convicted as I am? That's what he says. Now, John, in this passage, he wants the Christians to be assured of something. He wants them to be assured that they have the ability, by the grace of God, to overcome the evil one. And that's why he came. His grace appeared, bringing salvation. And as Paul told Titus, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's Titus 2, 12 through 14. Okay, the grace of God is training us. 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We have the grace of God as believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit that trains us as we study the Word of God and the Holy Spirit teaches us as we, as we separate ourselves from the world, love of the world and love of the things of the world. Again, not the beauty of creation. Many of you, like me, if you've traveled anywhere, you've seen God's creation all over, and as Christians, it should, even our own mountain, should draw our attention to the majesty of God and His, His wonderful creation. And unfortunately, many people look at the mountain and, and worship the mountain itself. We don't worship the creation, we worship the Creator. Right? But, so the world is not, in this sense, the creation, and it's not people. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and because of this warning, because of what the love of the world and things in the world does, which uh, John tells us makes it so the love of the Father is not in us, then that causes us, it should cause us as Christians to, to love the world, meaning unbelievers, and share the gospel with them, right? Because they need the truth. They need salvation. And that's what John's after here tonight is, is encouraging the believers, not only from last week, that, that their sins are forgiven, but reminding them, don't love the world or the things in the world. And you all can testify as I can, there is a great pull to love the world and the things of the world, right? And so we need to go to the Word of God and be strong in that last week because when the Word of God abides in you, you overcome the evil one, okay? All right, that's our lesson for tonight. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for this night and thank you for uh, John's words here that um, remind us this world and the things in this world, or they are evil. They are not from you. And they are indeed passing away. And Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy that has secured us in Christ for a salvation to be revealed when he returns. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We thank you for keeping us. That we don't have to rely on ourselves for that. And we thank you, Lord, for your your indwelling spirit, and for the truth of your word, Lord, that we can um, study, Lord, that, that your word would abide in us is what we desire, or that we could be obedient to you. I pray you would strengthen us, Lord, for when the lies of the world, the lofty arguments come against us, come against what you have said, that we would remember that you have spoken, and that will stand. Lord, draw our attention to that. Draw our attention Fix our eyes on Christ. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for the church. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you will receive all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.